Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here. My name is John Nicholas. I'm the lead pastor. If you're a guest here with us this morning, it's great to have you with us uh, on this beautiful fall morning that we have. If you're a regular attender, thanks for joining us and being here with us as well. Um, our band did a great job this morning. They always do leading us in worship, and uh, very I uh, just love being here and, and love being a part of hearing them lead us into God's presence on a regular basis. And uh, But we are looking for a few additional musicians, so if you are... Um, uh, an individual who has some musical ability, on the, you can see we're looking for some guitarists, uh, acoustic, electric, uh, bass. Uh, you can contact Damien, he'll give you more details. We'd love to have you consider being part of the team who are here with us as well. We're also looking for a few uh, individuals to work behind the wall. Those are tech-savvy people that managed to get everything up and running this morning, even when we aren't sure how that's going to. Computers do funny things, and you can't prepare for it, but they got things up and running for us. And so if you uh, enjoy that, uh, being behind the scenes, uh, doing those kinds of things, we'd love to have you consider being part of our team as well. When you meet with a financial planner, they want to know what level of risk you're willing to take. What level of risk you're willing to take, low, medium, or high? And as I thought about those categories, I thought there's really three categories. You know, the first individual is someone who's risk-averse. That's someone who's on the low level. You know, you don't like risk at all. You avoid it completely. And then the next category is someone who's a calculated risk-taker. And there's someone who kind of evaluates the pros and cons. Is it worth the risk? What will be the consequences? Should I dive into it? And the last category is a true blue risk-taker, a true blue risk-taker. And... Um, as I thought about these, I thought, how can I give you a way to help assess where you are this morning? So here's a couple questions for you to think about to assess where you are as far as what kind of risk taker. So you're at a friend's house for dinner, and they offer you something you've never tried. And so what do you do? You've got one of three choices. You either eat it out of politeness, you eat a little and say you had a big lunch, or you dive in and go back for seconds. You know, you can tell which one that one is. You dive in and go back to seconds. So here's another one. Your friend sets you up on a blind date, and what do you decide to do? Hey, they're my friends, so it's a calculated risk. I'll give it a shot. Um, or, sure, I love meeting new people. Why not? Or, no way, Jose. No chance there. So you're, there's a flash airline sale, and you can buy tickets somewhere exotic, really cheap, but they're selling out fast. How high is your level of risk? Do you already bought them? Already bought them. You're the true blue risk taker. Ah, I'm not sure about that. Got to check the dates at work, you know, find out if it's going to work out and others... Oh, i got to do some research. It probably is not going to work out, but i got to take some time to figure it out. So one more. You made dinner a couple days ago, and there's some leftovers. How, how, how much of a risk taker are you? Um, eat it. It's grand. You know, it's grand. What can it hurt? Do the sniff test and decide if it works. Wouldn't work for me. I can't smell. That wouldn't work for me. Or nuke it till it's an in, in, within an inch of its life, you know. So what kind of a risk taker are you? What's your level of risk? And I've concluded that since I've jumped off 40 and 60 foot cliffs, um, since I've traveled to countries I've never been in before and wandered around through them, and since I've gone to places I don't even know where I'm at and gone for runs and found my way home, um, I'm somewhere between the calculated risk taker and the risk taker. But where are you at this morning? Risk averse, calculated risk taker, or a true blue risk taker? Where are you at this morning? And as I thought about these three categories, I realized they, I think they apply not just to finances. As we saw, they can apply to the leftovers in your fridge, you know. They apply to a lot of different things in life. They can apply to relationships. 
You know, some of you, you never met a stranger you didn't like. You know, others of you are like, huh, I don't know. I think I'm my friend list. My friend block is pretty full. I'm, uh, you know, others of you are like, no way. I've got to be around you for like years before I let you come into that world of mine, you know. Uh, it also affects uh, not just friendships, um, but it also affects your eating habits in new restaurants. You know, how many of you, when you go to the restaurant, and you get the same thing every time because you know what it's going to be like? You know, you know what it's going to be like. And some of you, well, did somebody recommend it? Did somebody else try it? Have you ever been here before? And others of you, like, bring on the new stuff, man. I'm diving in. Something new, something I've never had. Give it a try. But I also think it relates to our faith our faith as well, because um, it's our relationship with God. And I think some of us are, you know, we're not really willing to take a lot of risk with God. Others of you, uh, uh, I'm going to watch it, I'm going to observe, has somebody done it before? And then some of you are like, I'm all in, I'm all in. But I've realized with risk, there's cost. There's cost, and that's part of the people who evaluate risk. They determine the cost. I've had tickets given to me. One of the things I like to do is go to sporting events. And so I've had tickets given to me to go to sporting events. Uh, I bought tickets, excuse me, to go to sporting events. And I've been given tickets to go to sporting events. And the tickets I've bought to go to sporting events, I've never missed one of those events. I always go when I spend the money to buy the tickets. But I have to confess that there's been a few occasions where someone has given me a ticket to a sporting event, and I'm like, eh, it looks like it might rain, I'm staying home. You know? And I thought about that, and I thought, when my money goes into something, when I'm paying into something, then I have this vested interest, and I don't really want to give it up, I don't really want to sacrifice it. You see this with kids. Let me ask you this question. Which one of these scenarios are kids more likely to take ownership and take care of? Something that they saved their money, they looked at the different options, they went to the store and bought, and then they purchased on their own, or something that a great aunt they hardly ever know gives them? Now, which one are they more likely to take care of and to protect and to be responsible for? The one that they put something into it. And this morning we're going to unpack and continue to talk about this subject of following Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning, it's going to require you to take a risk to follow Jesus. It's going to require you to take a risk. And it will cost you something. And it will cost you something. We began a series last week in the Gospel of Mark entitled Simply Jesus. If you have your Bibles, if you want to open them to the book of Mark, if you don't have a Bible, you can turn to the page, grab the Bible in the seat rack in front of you, and that's going to be on page 812. You can follow along on your wireless device, page 812. The book of Mark is not Mark's stories. He's actually writing for Peter. Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter likely was illiterate. Most of the people in that day were. But Mark had some writing skills. And so Mark took the stories that Peter wrote. Peter's in nearly every story that you're, we're going to look at in the book of Mark. He wrote these down. And he recorded them for us. And last week we met this individual by the name of John, who was the advance team for Jesus. He was the one coming in front of Jesus. And he kind of announced that Jesus was coming. And, and Jesus shows up on the scene, and I suggest to you, not to a lot of fanfare, but he probably looked like every other Jewish guy that was there being baptized, which was kind of a new revolutionary thing. And, um, but I think Jesus experienced something unique. Because the story, as the story goes, when Jesus was being baptized, the heavens, it says, came apart. And I think maybe only Jesus 
caught that. And it says after that that uh, the spirit came down in the form of a dove and landed on his shoulder. And I wonder if only Jesus knew that was God's spirit who landed on him. And then it says that there was a voice that came from heaven and it said, You are my beloved son. Not this is my beloved son as a pronouncement. You are my beloved son who I am pleased and thrilled with. And I wonder if only Jesus heard those words. And no one else did. But then, in, in, then, then there was no big party. Then Jesus got sent off into the wilderness. And God was still with him even in that place. And so John was the advanced team. And so as we dive into the text this morning in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, after John was put in prison, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. what happened? What happened? Did I, did I miss a chapter? Did I skip an episode in Netflix? What in the world happened? You know? What did John do? What, what caused him to get put in prison? What did he do wrong? What's the consequence? How long does he have to be there? We know nothing about this. Just this little blip, John's in prison, he's gone. And I kind of wonder if it's maybe to get the attention away from John, who didn't want it, and solely on Jesus. And so Jesus begins to proclaim the good news of the gospel. When he's proclaiming the good news, what's the good news in verse 15? He says, the time has come. It's finally here. It's finally here. It's finally arrived it's like they were waiting for something, anticipating something. It's finally here. It's like when a mom is expecting and she has a baby and everybody kind of knows she's going to have a baby. It's kind of obvious, but they don't know when the baby's coming. And so the mom says, it's what? What does the mom say? It's what? Time, right? It's time because she knows something that nobody else knows that this baby is ready to come out, right? And Jesus says, the kingdom is coming, it's time. But he doesn't say yet, he says it's near, it's getting close, getting close. And so to get ready, he says, I want you to repent and be baptized and believe. And this was radical for the people of that day, because they thought a Messiah, the deliverer, the rescue, was going to come and overthrow the government. That's what they were expecting. And so they were expecting him to show up and, and form militia groups and put them through training and, and find a way to gather weapons and come up with a strategy to defeat Rome. And, and all he says is, repent? That's all you got, Jesus? Don't you have anything more? Repent. Turn from your ways. Turn from your ways and believe this good news. Believe this good news. So Jesus is announcing this. And as he's announcing this, he's walking along the seashore. And he's walking along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a very big body of water. They call it a sea. We would call it a lake. 13 feet long, 7 feet wide. Not very big. We'd call it kind of a medium-sized lake is what we would call it. But as Jesus is walking along the seashore, he comes across Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets. They were fishermen. That's pretty common in that day. Anybody lived around, the, lived around the water, that's what you did to survive. And he says to them, come follow me and I'll send you out to fish for something different, for people. And you read this story and you're like, wow, that was pretty fast. Those guys, they just wanted out of fishing. That's all they wanted out of. You know, they were tired of fishing. What's the next new thing there to do? But he, Mark doesn't tell us the whole story. You kind of have to go into Luke to hear a little bit more of the story, and then it makes a little more sense. You see, what Jesus did is he came along the seashore, and there were some boats there, and he, he sat in one of these boats, and there was people starting to follow him. as a rabbi, and he was teaching, and he pushed one of the boats off the shore, and he started talking to the people. And as he finished teaching, he turned to one of the fishermen, Peter, in our story, and he says to Peter, he said, Peter, come on, let's go out and get some fish. And Peter's like, no, no. We just fished all night and we didn't catch anything. It's time to go home. 
And Jesus is like, come on, just one more trip. Just one more trip out, you know? It's a little like if you've, been, you've taken your kids to the amusement park and you've ridden roller coaster rides all day and it's like 20 minutes before closing. They're like, come on, one more ride, one more ride. Jesus is like, come on, one more time out, one more time out, one more time out. Peter's like, all right, we're going to go out. I don't think anything's going to happen, we're going to go out. They go out, throw the nets over, and all of a sudden the boats are like, whoop, you know, because the, the net is so full of fish they can barely pull it in. And they get some help from the shore to come pull it in, and they're like, Peter's like blown away. He's like, I don't know who you really are, but I don't even deserve to be in your presence. In your presence. And then Jesus says, hey guys, you want to come with me? You want to follow me? You want the adventure of a lifetime? How about we go and fish for something different? Fish for people, and not just fish. Not just fish. And it says right away they left their nets and they followed him. You know, this was very unusual for a rabbi to do this. Rabbis didn't ask someone to come and follow them. It's not the way it worked. You say, how did it work? It's a little bit like when you go to college and you go to sign up for classes in college and what you do is you, you pick the classes that you're going to go to, right? That's what you do. We've got a few of our college students here. Any of you college students, any of you ever had or anybody, did anybody ever have a professor come to you and say, I want you to come to my class? Anybody ever had that happen? I never had that happen. Nobody else did, so I guess I'm not weird, you know. It's just not the way it works, right? You choose who you're going to follow. The person in charge doesn't pick you to follow them. But that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. And that's the way Jesus does things. You see, Jesus doesn't do things the way everybody else does things. And Jesus threw out what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark is that he repeatedly turns upside down the ways of the culture, turns upside down the ways of relationship, turns upside down the ways of faith, and said, that's the way you've experienced before. Now I've got a different way for you to experience it. And this way is for me to point to you and say, will you come and follow after me? Not for you to decide. Not for you to decide. And see, kind of in our Western mindset, we think that we decide if we're going to follow Jesus. But as you read some of Paul's letters later, you discover Paul writes that God has this plan for our lives that started before time began. And he said, I want you, and I want you, and I want you to follow me. And he orchestrates the events of our lives to bring us to a place where we recognize we need Jesus and we want to follow him. And so what Jesus introduces here is really what he's been doing for centuries, inviting people to follow, inviting people to follow, inviting people to follow. He goes on to meet a couple other guys, James and his brother John, and they're getting their nets ready. They're either cleaning up or mending the nets. That's what these guys are doing. And without delay, he called them and they said to dad, see you, dad, and they left him and they followed Jesus as well. And so the question for you this morning, and maybe you're wondering if I'm going to suggest this to you, is that God might be calling you to leave what you know, leave what's comfortable, and, and follow Him. And sometimes He does that. Sometimes He does that. One of the guys in our church and his wife, Reg and Kim, they're getting ready, they're raising funds so that they can go to another part of the world, leave everything that they know, to serve God in another part of the world. And does God call us to do that? I think he does at times. 
But these guys, they eventually went back and started fishing again. After Jesus died and rose again, they went back to fishing again. And so I think there's a bigger question than will you leave everything you have and go follow Jesus. I think the bigger question is who or what's most important in your life? Who or what is most important in your life? Is your career what's most important in your life? Is your family what's most important in your life? Those are not bad things. Is your retirement most important in your life? Is making people happy what's most important in your life? Is avoiding conflict and pain what's most important in your life? I want to ask you this question. Has knowing and following and serving Jesus become the most important thing in your life? You see, I think that's what Jesus was asking these young guys. And they weren't seasoned fishermen. They're probably 16 to 20 years old. And he says, guys, what's the most important thing to your life? Is catching fish the most important thing in your life? There's something more important than catching fish. Something more important catching fish. And maybe if you ask this question, it will help to clarify. Does everything else come second? Does everything else come second? How many of you in the room this morning um, want to be known as a fanatic? Let me see. How many of you want to be known as a fanatic? I don't have a lot of takers. I don't have a lot of takers. We don't want to be known as fanatics, do we? We really don't. Um, and when you think about someone who says, Jesus is what matters more to me than anything else, you probably view him as a little fanatical. A little fanatical. Jesus talked about this in Luke 14 when he was talking to his followers, trying to help them understand this whole idea of following him. And he says this, he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate brother, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus doesn't say, hey, is there any in the crowd that might have an interest in being fanatical about me? Can I get a couple takers? Can I get two or three? That would be great. If I get two or three from each crowd, then I get a dozen. And No, no, Jesus says this is an invitation to everybody. He offers this to everyone. And he doesn't say you can be moderate if you want and I just need a few good men or a few good women. He invites anyone. And then he uses this word that makes us all uncomfortable and that's the word hate. That's the word hate. And I don't think what Jesus is implying is despise or want nothing to do with, but I think he's using it as a comparative tool to ask us, is there anything in your life that matters more than me? Is there anything in your life that matters more than me? Are you willing to follow me so intensely, so devotedly, so endearingly that it appears to the people in your life that you hate everything else except for me? Except for me. What do we often say? Well, I'll follow Jesus as long as my job's working out and I can pay my bills. And, and I'll follow Jesus as long as my health stays good. I'll follow Jesus if my marriage is working out. I'll follow Jesus if my finances are okay. And anything on the other side of the if, I'll follow Jesus if, anything on the other side of that is an idol. Is an idol. Anything on the other side of that is what I'm putting in front of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uncomfortable. You say, well, how do I know? Ask your kids, what matters most to me? They'll tell you. 
He'll tell you. Ask your spouse, your husband or your wife, if you're married, what matters most to me? They'll tell you. A couple of your close friends. You know, if I ask my spouse and if I ask my kids, what's most important to me? I, I think what they might say, I could be wrong, but they might say the church is what's most important to me. And while that might sound good in theory, good things should never replace Jesus in our lives. And I've wrestled with trying to figure out, how do I make him more important? How do I make him first above everything else in my life? How do I do that? But I think that's what the invitation that he's offering to these men, and I think that's the invitation he's offering to you today. You say, John, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, Mark goes on to record a couple stories that I want us to look at that I think will help lay a foundation for the value of willing to take this kind of a risk. Look back in the text in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. So they then went up to Capernaum, and it was the Sabbath, which is their day of worship. They came to a synagogue, their place of, their, like a temple, and Jesus began to teach. He would go into those places. The rabbis would go and people would come to worship just like we're experiencing here. They would take out not a Bible like I have here, but they would take out a scroll made out of lambskin. They start to unroll it and they would start to read some portions of it. And that's what Jesus began to do. And as he began to read um, from the scroll, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. You say, what's that mean? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Not as the teachers of the law. But in the middle of that, there was a man who was possessed by an impure spirit, a demon, and he cried out, the man did from this demon, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus says, certainly come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently. He came out with a shriek. And the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? What is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Now, as I read this text, as I read this part of the story, you know what amazes me? They were more amazed with Jesus' authority than a demon coming out of a dude. Okay? You know, this is like gremlins for real, you know? I mean, that's what this is. They weren't amazed with that. I don't know if it just happened a lot. I think it happened a lot around Jesus. They weren't amazed with that. They were amazed with his authority. That's what they couldn't get over. They couldn't make any sense out of this. They were amazed because he taught his one who had authority. What's that mean? Well, often someone would come and they'd read a scroll. That was pretty common. That happened all the time when they would come to synagogue. But when they would read this scroll, the readers of the scroll would say, now this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this. That's what they would say. They would give them the interpretation of the scroll that the various rabbis had written. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, and Matthew it records it over and over again, you have heard it said, but I'm saying to you. You've heard it said, but I'm saying to you. You've heard it said, but I'm saying to you. There was an authority that Jesus had over people and their lives and their world that they never experienced before. Never. Never. And they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. Even the spirits obey him. And the spirit knew who Jesus was. They said, who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Jesus was a common name, so the geographic location is where they would connect them to. Jesus of Nazareth. Who are you? The spirits knew. The spirits knew. Have you come to destroy? They knew they have a limited time window. Their time's ticking. They knew their time's going to be done. And when Jesus died on the cross and shed his, shed his blood for our sins, he stabbed evil in the heart. Does it still live? Yeah. But in somewhat of a defeated state. And he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And as you think about this story and you think about the authority that Jesus represented and what these people were experiencing for the very first time. It goes on in verse 29. He left the synagogue. He went with James and John to, to Peter and Andrew's, Simon and Andrew's house. And their mom was sick. Excuse me, Simon's mother-in-law was sick. And in, those, in that culture, in that day, if you were sick, it was believed that because you had sinned, you sin, you get sick. You sin, you get sick. You sin, you get sick. That's what they believed in that day. So they thought that there was some kind of sin that had happened. They told Jesus about her. He went to her, took her hand, and helped her. The fever was gone. And then she began to serve him. You say, what's so significant about this story? Well, in that culture, remember, women had no sense of value and worth. Women were devalued in that culture in a horrific kind of a way. And what Jesus regularly did is he elevated their value and their place. So one of his very first miracles after casting a demon out and showing that he has authority even over the world of the spirits is say he's going to move into the lives of people that are devalued and value them. And then it goes on to say that he went through the whole town and he healed many who had diseases, drove out demons, and he told them to be quiet. He even had control over them. You know, the first time that Jesus showed up, and he went into one of these places of worship. He grabbed a scroll and he read this from the book of Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, You are experiencing this right now. When you ask yourself this question, is it worth the risk to follow Jesus? Is it worth the risk to follow Jesus? Remember, Jesus not only had power over the spirit world, he had power over the physical world, and that's just for starters. And he's saying to you today, he's saying, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because he's inviting you to follow him. He's inviting you to follow him. He's saying, follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything in your whole life. Follow me because I humbled myself for you. Follow me because I died on the cross for you. Follow me because I was willing to bring you good news, not just good advice. Follow me because I was willing to give my life for you. So what does following Jesus look like? What does following Jesus look like? Well, I believe each one of us are on a journey. And each one of us are at different places. And so following Jesus is going to look different for every single one of us, as it will be for me. For some of you, following Jesus means simply going public with your faith. In a few weeks right here, we're going to have a baptism, and we're going to invite you. If you have chosen to say, I want Jesus to be what's most important in my life, but you've never been physically baptized, we want to encourage you to take that step. Just check that box on your card and We'll follow up with you. We want you to go public with your faith. Maybe you're, a, you're at a place where you need to learn more about Jesus. 
You're like, I don't really know much about this Jesus you're talking about. And maybe you need to participate in starting point as an opportunity for you to do that. But for some of you, it's a lot more practical. For some of you, following Jesus means cutting back on some of your hours and putting your attention and priority in other places. For some of you, it's not pursuing upward mobility, which is the next raise, the next career opportunity, the next step forward, and just being content with where you are. For some of you, it's not hiding the reality that you are a follower of Jesus when you're around classmates, when you're around teammates, when you're around family members, when you're around coworkers who are not followers of Jesus. For some of you, following Jesus is facing the dark places in your heart and soul that you're not sure he could do anything about. And you're not even sure you want to do anything about with the help of a trusted guide or a counselor. You might be wondering, what is following Jesus really like? What's it really like? Let me ask you this question. If you were to ask a seven-year-old what marriage is like, would they have an idea what marriage is like? No, no. Yesterday, we had a beautiful wedding here. Um, uh, Mitch and Kelsey got married, stood right in front of me. They're excited about being married. They're pledging their lives for e to each other. Now, to those of you that have been married for any length of time, do they have any idea what marriage is about? No, you can say no out loud. No. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Will they discover what marriage is all about? Yes, they will. Right, right. Just like a seven-year-old, as they get older, they discover, oh, they get a little glimpse of it. And for some of you that are calculated risk takers and risk averse, you measure risk carefully. The idea of following Jesus, the idea of taking another step is the scariest thing that you can think of right now that I'm asking you to do. Nothing could be scarier. Nothing. But he's tapping you on the shoulder and he's saying, I've given my life for you and I've been down this road before. Will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you take this step? You say, John, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. I want to suggest to you that you do this every day of your life. Every day of your life. Say, so what do you mean? How many of you use one of these anymore? How many people use a map, a paper map? Anybody use a paper map? Oh, no, some, some, somebody pushed their father's hand up. He must like paper maps, you know. So, sorry about that. I saw that back there. No, we don't use paper maps anymore. What do we use? We use Google, right? We use Google. And Google is based on what? Global positioning satellites. How many people in this room have ever seen a satellite? Okay, I, 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 you know, one person, two people, three, four maybe, you know. But you what? You trust this satellite, these satellites with your life, right? Whatever she, wherever she tells you to go, you go, right? You've never seen them before but you trust them impeccably every single day. Jesus has been down this road before. He has walked this road before. And He's inviting you to do the same. He left a place of comfort, His Father's throne. He left a place of significance and value with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a perfect relationship. He came to this earth. He came to this place that we live in. And He was willing to give His life and to die and to be buried and rise again. And He says, I'm simply inviting you. Would you be willing to follow me? Would you be willing to follow me? Will you be willing to take that next step? It's going to feel risky. And it likely will cost you something. 
but it could change your life forever. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads this morning. As you bow your heads, I just want to give you a moment as the band's coming up just to be quiet with God and just be completely honest. Tell them where your heart is. Maybe someone brought you to church today and you're like, I don't know what I'm here and what I'm getting into, but um, maybe today's the first day you've thought about, you know, maybe I really should follow Jesus. What would that look like to give my life to Him? just quietly there in your heart saying, God, I recognize I'd, I've been doing life on my own. I recognize I don't want to do that anymore. I want to follow Jesus. For others of you who have been doing that, God's given you a nudge to do something. And if it's not clear, I want to challenge you to make that prayer your prayer this week. Say, God, how do you want me to follow you? How do you want me to follow you? For those that are crystal clear, ask God to give you courage and hope and confidence in Him. God, you know where each one of us is at. You know our story. You know our struggle. You know the roadblock in front of us and you know what it's going to take to move that. Help us, God, to Lead this morning with a deepening sense of faith and hope and confidence that Jesus has been there before and he's willing to walk that road with us. In your name we pray.